recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 20th, 2014, and we will commence with our presentation of the Epistles of Paul. Part 11, we're still in Romans chapter 8. We won't get out of Romans chapter 8 tonight. We'll, we will reserve the commencement of chapter 9 for next week. There is no disparity between the Word of God and the creation of God. If you are an Adamic man, you have an eternal spirit from God. And for that reason, you should seek to do the works of your Father. If you are not an Adamic man, or if you are of mixed race, if you are a if you are a bastard, you have not one chance in hell of ever getting into heaven. As we saw in our last presentation of Romans, that the resurrection is through the Spirit, the Spirit of God. And as Paul explained in his epistle to the Corinthians, that Spirit is transmitted through the natural body, being sown in that same seed which creates the natural physical body. In this next segment of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans, we shall see that the Adamic man is a unique creation. And when the apostle used terms such as the whole creation, he was referring only to the creation of the Adamic man corruptions of Yahweh's creation, bastards, people of mixed race, and other freaks, corruptions of Yahweh's creation have corrupt spirits as well, because all flesh is not the same flesh. And the apostles considered those bastards to be clouds without water, which are twice dead, not having the spirit of Yahweh. That is why both the apostles Peter and Jude considered the infiltrators among the children of Israel in their own time to be spots and blemishes in their feasts of charity, feasting themselves without fear among the Israelite Christians with designs upon fornication and adultery eyes full of adultery, pursuing different flesh. So it was in the first century, and it has not changed today, except that white Israelite Christians today refuse to recognize the problem, for the most part, where, by helping the devils, they imagine themselves to be helping God. We asserted at the beginning of our Romans chapter 8 presentation, that this chapter is a conclusion to those which, it pre which preceded it. As Paul informed us in Romans chapter 5, that the entire Adamic race has life in Christ, here he reinforced that assertion while also further explaining the reasons why it is true. We are going to repeat a few verses which we had presented at the end of our last presentation because 
they are so closely related to the things which we must discuss in the balance of this chapter of Romans. In the final verses of Romans chapter 8, Paul's primary message is that the entire Adamic creation was subjected to transiency by Yahweh himself. Transiency meaning decay and death. And that the entire Adamic creation shall ultimately be liberated from that transiency. This builds upon the message which Paul transmitted in the previous chapters, especially in Romans chapter 5. And here Paul concludes that no other creation will be able to separate us, if in fact we are of the Adamic race, from the love of Yahweh where we see that he used the term for creation in a finite sense, in application to the creation of a single kind, which is the Adamic kind. We will see that Paul does not use the creation to describe every object or every biological entity that God created. He uses that word creation of a single kind. That's important. That's an important concept. It's an important concept to grasp in Paul's writings because it tells us how to apply that phrase, the whole creation. It doesn't refer to everything under the sun. It's referring to all the members of a particular creation, not to everything which God created which are many different creations. We shall also see here that Paul attributed to God, to Yahweh, the exposure of the Adamic man to sin and to transiency. And that is certainly true in effect. Yahweh God foresees the sins of man. Otherwise, he could not be God. Therefore, he must have known before time that Adam would be led to fail in his original purpose. Sin is failure of purpose. This is wholly evident and fully corroborated by other scriptures, such as where Peter professed that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, or where Christ himself professes in his revelation that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which means that Yahweh God foresaw the Messiah before the foundation of the world. If the Messiah was foreordained or preordained, before the world was founded, then the need for that Messiah was known from the very beginning. And the sin which made a Messiah necessary was also known from the very beginning. Presenting Romans chapter 7, we have already concluded that the Adamic man was placed into this world of rebellion so that 
the children of God may learn the nature of sin and its consequences. And they shall also learn that only God can save them from it. Men cannot even save themselves from sin. Christ told the apostles to pray that they would not enter into temptation for that very reason. Now to continue with Romans chapter 8. From verse 19. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To transientness, the creation was subjected not willingly, but on account of he who subjected it in expectation that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh. For we know that the whole creation laments together and travails together until then. When we read these ver- read these verses in our last presentation, we cited Ecclesiastes 3.10, where Solomon had written that I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. We cited that chapter, Ecclesiastes 3, as far as verse 14, where it is asserted that nothing can be added to or subtracted from the creation of Yahweh. And it says, I know that, Whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, meaning added to it, nor anything taken from it. And God does it that men should fear before him. Ostensibly, God is not going to accept the corruptions of his creation which have been which have been contrived by man. Now to summarize a few other assertions which we made at the close of our last presentation in the middle of Romans chapter 8, we have already pointed out several times in relation to Romans chapter 7 that Paul explains that the law was given to Israel in order that sin may become manifest. The wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15, which we also cited, explains that through an understanding of sin, we learn the power of God and the root of immortality which lies in that power. Ostensibly, for the same reason, Paul explained to the Galatians that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Understanding these things, we concluded that the reason for the presence of the children of God in this evil world is so that they may know sin and learn the importance of obedience. This is why the creation was subjected to transiency by Yahweh. And for this reason, shall the creation ultimately be freed from that transiency 
and restored once again to immortality, which is the liberation from the bondage of decay which the children of Yahweh now expect. This is also why, ultimately, all of Israel and the entire Adamic race, as Paul explains in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians, as in Adam all died, so in Christ all shall be made alive, meaning all Adamic men. This is why all of Israel and the entire Adamic race shall indeed have eternal life. And if you're a bastard, you don't have a chance in hell of seeing heaven. This is also why, in the aftermath of the fall of Adam, it says in Genesis 3.22, And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The reason for the fall of man was his eating, his taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these corruptions of Yahweh's creation do not have eternal life. The man has eternal life if he clings to his own race and propagates his own kind, keeping the laws of his God. We already cited other scriptures which relate to another aspect of this passage of Romans, namely Psalm 94 and Revelation 6, which indeed depict both the living and the dead of our Adamic race as lamenting and travailing and awaiting the mercy and the vengeance of Yahweh our God upon his enemies, where we anticipate our redemption and our liberation from decay. This liberation from the bondage of decay is also described by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he states, and I'll read from verse 49, that just as we have borne the likeness of that of soil, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven. But this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood are not able to inherit the kingdom of Yahweh, nor does decay inherit, in, inherit incorruption. In other words, if you don't have that spirit which God gave to Adam within you, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. You have to be born from above. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed, all Adamic men. In an instant, in a dart of an eye, because Paul said in this chapter, as in Adam, all men died in Christ, all men, meaning all Adamic men, shall be made alive. In an instant, in a dart of an eye, with the last trumpet, for it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. This decay wants to be clothed in incorruptibility, and is mortal to be clothed in immortality. And when 
this decay shall have put on incorruptibility, and this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then the word that has been written shall come to pass. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Paul goes on to state in that same chapter, Now the sting of death is guilt, and the power of guilt is the law. But gratitude is to Yahweh, in whom we are being given the victory through our Prince, Yahshua Christ. These words once again make manifest the truth of our conclusion that the reason for the presence of the children of God in this evil world is so that they may know sin, so that they may realize its consequences, that sin leads to death, and so that they may learn the importance of obedience, obedience to the law of God. Now we must consider what Paul has said here in verses 19, 20, and 22, where we read that the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh, and that the creation was subjected to transiency, and the whole creation laments together and travails together. What does he mean by this word, creation, or the whole creation. This is an important concept because it impacts. Understanding what Paul means by this word impacts your entire worldview when you consider the Scripture. You be a universalist or you can observe the way that Paul used these words and believe him. because Paul is not a universalist. It is quite clear that the phrases rendered here as the creation and the whole creation are not used to designate everything which was ever created by Yahweh. No, they weren't. It might sound that way because you think that way when you hear the word creation. But Paul is only using this word to designate the creation of a single kind, which in these instances are references to the Adamic race alone. In the final verses of this chapter, the Adamic creation is contrasted to other things which Yahweh had created, which are then called any other creation. And that fully substantiates the truth of our assertions concerning the word for creation here. Further support for this narrow interpretation of what the term creation is meant to describe would certainly contradict the general, generally accepted universalist heresies is found in the wisdom of Solomon from chapter 19, from verse 6, where it says, For the whole creature, I'm reading Brenton Septuagint, for the whole creature 
in his proper kind was fashioned again anew, serving the peculiar commandments that were given unto them, that thy children might be kept without hurt. In that passage, the writer intends to describe not even the entire Adamic race, but only the children of Israel in his use of the term, the whole creature. And that word, in the wisdom of Solomon, 19.6, that word for creature is the same word Paul uses here, which we have translated as creation. in this passage, in Romans 8.20, and Romans 8.22. The Greek word for creation, in verses 19, 20, and 22 of Romans chapter 8, is a singular form of the word kikesis. K-T-I-S-I-S, Ketesis. Strong's number 2937. In verse 22, the phrase, Pasa He appears. And in the King James Version, as in the Christogenian New Testament, that phrase is rendered as the whole creation and the rendering is proper. The Greek word, pas, the whole, sometimes it's every, which is misleading. We will get to that. The Greek word, pas, Strong's number 3956, can mean all. However, when it appears in the singular and it is used of a singular entity, it should be rendered as whole and not as all. When a word is in the plural, and it is used to describe a plurality, only then is it properly understood to mean all of that plurality, all the trees, all the men, the words trees and men being plural, and that's fine. In these passages, the word creation is singular. It's not every creature. It's not all the creatures. It's the whole creation because the word catesis is singular. Liddell and Scott, the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon defines pas to mean, and I quote, all when used of many, when the word that it describes is plural. And they go on to say, when of one only, all, the whole, all as in the whole. There are places where it may be rendered as every, as long as the proper singular or plural perspective is maintained. 
when you take a singular term, catesis, and put pas in front of it, you cannot translate it as every creation because this word for creation is singular. If the word for creation were plural, then you could translate it as every, and that would be fair. Here, the King James Version, here in Romans 8.22, the King James Version properly translated the phrase pasa he ketesis, where pasa and ketesis are both singular as the whole creation. In other places, it was instead rendered as every creature. In the manner in which we interpret such words today, that is misleading. And it also helps to lead men astray as to the purpose and focus of the gospel. Here, it is demonstrable that Paul is concerned only with the entire Adamic creation, which he describes as pasa he ketesis, or the whole creation. And here in 8.22, in Romans 8.22, the King James Version has it right. In both Colossians 1.15 and Colossians 1.23, the same phrase appears. Now, it's in a different grammatical case, but it's the same phrase, and it's singular in both places. Now, if the scope of the term, the whole creation, as Paul used it here in Romans, explicitly describes only the Adamic race, clearly referring to one kind only, Adam kind, then we cannot imagine that his use of that same term in Colossians exceeds the ex that explicit definition which Paul provides here, and he does provide it. We will see that at the end of this chapter if we haven't seen it already. So the phrase, every creature in Colossians chapter 1, which we see in the King James Version, where the same Greek words appear in verses 15 and 23, should also have been translated as the whole creation and understood to refer only to the Adamic race. Therefore, where Paul is speaking of Christ, and the King James Version has Colossians 1.15 to read, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. It is properly translated, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of the whole creation, referring exclusively to the Adamic creation, the creation of Adamic man. Christ is the firstborn of the Adamic creation because he is Yahweh God incarnate, and Adam is the son of Yahweh. Luke 3.38. For that same reason, here in Romans 8.29, Paul referred to Christ as the firstborn among many brethren. 
Furthermore, in the passage at Colossians 1.23, Paul speaks of, and I quote, the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Here we also see that the Adamic race, which is the whole creation that Paul was concerned with, had indeed heard the gospel. With this, it is evident that there was never any need to bring it to any other race. If these words, translated in the King James Version of the Bible as every creature, properly refer to only the whole creation of one particular kind, which is the Adamic man, that has ramifications which carry over throughout Scripture, not only to Colossians chapter 1, but even to the spurious passage at Mark chapter 16 in verse 15 where the King James Version says to preach the gospel to every creature. Which, of course, today, the denominational sects interpret in a manner which is clearly contradictory to the purpose of the gospel itself. The words every creature once again come from this same phrase which Paul used here in Romans 8.22. And it's singular in number, just like it is here in Romans 8.22. We do not accept the last 11 verses of Mark chapter 16. I don't. They're, they're deathly spurious. They are missing from the most ancient manuscripts. However, if one does accept them, it is evident that these words at Mark chapter 16 should be rendered as the whole creation, being in the singular, referring to that same Adamic creation, without a doubt. In conclusion, we see that the use of this phrase, pasa e catesis, which is singular, all the creation, the whole creation, speaking of one singular creation, the use of this phrase to support the ideas of universalism is wrong. Paul was truly saying precisely the opposite of what the universalists would assert. And furthermore, since Paul equates, with, equates man, the term for man, with Adam in both 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Romans chapter 5, Wherever Paul says all men, or something similar, he can only be understood to mean all Adam, because he equates the two terms. All of this Adamic creation with which he is concerned. As Paul says, if one has not the spirit of Christ, one is not of him. If one is not, of the Adamic race, one cannot have the Spirit of Christ. We must understand Paul's words in the context in which Paul wrote, and not in the context that man would like to apply them today. 
Here, Paul says, verse 19, Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation, singular, awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. In verse 20, to transientness, the creation, singular, was subjected not willingly. In verse 22, Paul says, we know that the whole creation, because the terms are all singular, it doesn't mean every creation. It doesn't mean every creature, as creature could be imagined to be a, a, a plural entity, a, a um, collective noun that's plural of every creature on the whole planet. No, the word is not plural. It's singular. The word for whole is singular. The word for creation is singular. For we know that the whole creation laments together and travails together. So we see that Paul used this word creation, singular, three times, describing the children of Adam. And we get to the end of this chapter, chapter 8. And we see that Paul wrote, who shall separate us? I'm going to quote the King James. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we, this is only written of the children of Israel, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for slaughter. Then Paul goes on to say, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. That's the same word, ketesis, any other creature, nor any other creation. That same word is translated creation in Romans 8.22, where the King James wrote, the whole creation. So we see in Romans 8 that height, is a creation. Death is a creation. Angels are a creation. Principalities are a creation. Powers are a creation. Things present, things to come. Paul is distinguishing all these things and comparing them to the Adamic man, which is a creation. A creation, as opposed to all of these other creations. Therefore, the way Paul uses the phrase, the whole creation, he refers to only the creation of one kind, the Adamic man. Nobody else is included. Nothing else is included. Paul is distinguishing that from all other kinds or entities or aspects of creation.
Therefore, where Mark says, go out and preach the gospel to every creature. Those words are singular. Go out and preach the gospel to the whole creation. The Adamic creation. That's what Paul means. That's how Paul uses the term here. That's how the term is used in the wisdom of Solomon. Verse 23. And not alone, but also they, having the first fruit of the Spirit, and we ourselves with them lament, awaiting the placement of sons, the redemption of our body. Paul seems to be distinguishing those early Christians who were blessed with the spirit of Pentecost as compared to the Christians who later received the gospel in which the reception of that spirit and the gifts which accompanied it were not so evidently manifested. The Greek word huiothesia is the placement of sons in this passage as it is the position of sons in verse 15. Last week, we explained when presenting verse 15 that the word cannot possibly mean adoption as we use that term today. It means the placement of a son. Sometimes, in some contexts, that refers to the to adoption, the placing of a son up for adoption. It doesn't refer to the act of adoption itself. In the New Testament, it's the placing of a son into the grace and mercy of Yahweh, into his position in the kingdom of Yahweh for which that son was predestined because, as Paul says, the adoption is for Israel. The placement of sons is for Israel alone, Romans chapter 9. In any event, we see that the receiving of the Holy Spirit by those first Christians was not by itself the promised redemption of their bodies. Paul explained in several passages in his epistles that the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God by those first Christians, was only a deposit of the Spirit of God, which shall eventually dwell with Adamic man. It's a deposit as an indication of the surety of the promise. One place where Paul made such an explanation is in Ephesians chapter 1, where he said from verse 12, for which we are to be in praise of his honor, who before had an expectation in the Christ, in whom you also, having heard the word of truth, the good message of your deliverance, in which also having believed, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, which is a deposit of our inheritance. In regard to the redemption of the possession, in praise of his honor. The King James Version sometimes translated that word, which means deposit, as earnest. 
which, which is an obsolete. That, that's an obsolete definition of the word. An Adamic man, accepting the gospel of Christ and acting accordingly, his fruits are manifest, and he is assured of the promises of the Spirit of God, because he indeed has the Spirit of God. And as we explained last week, the Spirit of God descending on those first Christians at the Pentecost, that wasn't the spirit of man, which is from God. That is the spirit of God coming to dwell alongside that spirit of man, as Christ had promised that he, that he would come, he and his father, Joshua Christ, the Holy Spirit, and Yahweh the Father are one, would come and dwell with men who accepted and believed him and turned to him. And that Holy Spirit was a promise of that, a deposit of that. Verse 24. And therefore, knowing this, all Adamic men should seek to please God. Verse 24. In hope we are restored. But hope being seen is not hope. Indeed, that which one sees, why would he also hope for? Some manuscripts have, why would he also await? That Greek word, the verb sozo, I translated as restore here. Primarily, it's to save, to keep. Of persons, it's to save from death, to keep alive, or to preserve. Here, in the context of the suffering of the Adamic race, I have admittedly chosen a more emphatic translation. Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon further defines the word as to save a suffering one. For example, one suffering from a disease. To make well, heal, or restore to health. This is the general biblical context in which we should understand the word sozo, to save. Since the purpose of the Messiah is the restoration of his Adamic people. And no other race has such an expectation. Verse 25, Romans 8. But if we expect that which we do not see, through patient endurance we wait. And in like manner, the Spirit assists us with our weakness. For that which we should pray for, regarding what there is need of, we do not know. But the Spirit itself intercedes. Some manuscripts, including the majority text, add the words on our behalf. But the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible utterances. Literally, that's inexpressible groanings. Paul informs us that the word of God is certain and that the children of God shall indeed receive the fruits of his promises, that there should not be any doubt whatsoever. 
from Psalm 16, from verse 8, I have set Yahweh always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now that thine holy one, that thou shalt not suffer to see corruption, that was interpreted to refer to Christ by the apostles, and that's fine. It certainly did, but it also referred to David, and it refers to any of these saints, because that's what Holy One is. By saint, it refers to any of the children of God who put their faith in God, who put God, metaphorically put God at their right hand, meaning to put God first in their lives is what it means. It's an old idiom. And we have hope in Christ because if we are of his, if we are a damnic man, unsoiled, pure Adamic man like he was, we have the same hope which he has showed us. From James chapter 1, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 27. And he who searches the hearts knows that in the mind of the Spirit, because in accordance with Yahweh, it intercedes for the saints. Paul is referring to the spirit within man that he mentioned in these, these verses 825 and 826 that intercede on our behalf. We don't know what we should pray for. Our spirits do. And it intercedes for us with inexpressible utterances. From James chapter 1, from verse 12, Blessed is a man who endures trial, because being approved, he shall receive the crown of life which he promised, meaning which God promised, to those who love him. Since he who searches the hearts is Yahweh God, then the spirit of verse 27 refers to the spirit of God, which is an inborn part of the Adamic man, as Paul explained, and as we discussed at length last week, as Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That spiritual part of man intercedes on behalf of the man with Yahweh God. Christ is God, manifest in the flesh, and he is our fleshly intercessor. However, no other man is required to intercede on our behalf. If we have the spirit of Yahweh in us, we being Adamic men, do not need a human intercessor other than Christ. Perhaps the prayers of our brethren who love us may insist us, as the apostles indicate with certainty. In that context, the apostle James said in chapter 5 of his epistle, 
that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much and tells us that the people of the community should pray for the sick. And that's fine. However, the idea of some pope or some priest as pontiff is thoroughly refuted by these words of Paul. That word pontiff, that comes from the Latin word pontifex. And a pontifex in Latin is a bridge maker. In Christianity, it should be seen as an evil word. It's absolutely an evil word. It infers that a priest is required on behalf of you to build the bridge to God. We don't need priests to build bridges to God. If we have the spirit of a damned man, our own spirits, they are our bridges to God. If we don't have the spirit which Yahweh imparted to a damned man, we don't have a part with God. Period. The idea of pontifex came from the pagan world, and it is contrary to Christianity, and it is clearly contrary to Paul's words here in Romans. There's even a serious problem today within Christian identity. That problem belongs to those who cling to this same mentality by requiring rituals like water baptism. The clowns in Christian identity that insist that they should baptize you in water, water baptism at the hand of a man is somehow necessary to be saved. Christ himself saved all of our race 2,000 years ago. And no man can improve upon that. You can't make that better. They who make themselves our Baptists and our intercessors seek to make themselves our popes. They can't replace Christ. They are fools. Water baptism was for John. Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. They're his own words. It's about time we got them. We don't need a pontifex. We don't need a man outside of Christ to be our bridge to God. Verse 28. But we know that those, to those who love Yahweh, all things work together for good. To those who in accordance with purpose are called, who in accordance with purpose are called. Those who are called by Yahweh are called in accordance with purpose. These words aren't just pretty words. These words have definite meanings which are relevant to the calling of the Old Testament, to the calling in Christ. Paul's not just saying this because it sounds fancy. The Greek word rendered as purpose here is prothesis. It's 
Strong's number 4286. It very literally means a placing in public, a public notice. It was even used of the statement of a case in open court. It's a public notice, purpose. Where do we find the purpose of God? We find it in the Old Testament. Because there was no New Testament as we know it in Paul's day when he wrote this. Men studied the scriptures. It referred to the Old Testament. How many times did Christ tell his adversaries and those who loved him to search the scriptures? And Paul commended those who searched the scriptures. A prothesis, purpose here in English, a prothesis is a placing in public, a public notice. Paul's words here fully infer that Yahweh had previously made a public notice concerning those whom he had called. That notice is certainly not a mystery, for it is indeed found in the Old Testament. It's incredible that so many denominational Christians can ignore these words and their meaning. The Old Testament states on many occasions that Yahweh has called the children of Israel and has excluded all others. Isaiah chapter 48 from verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. No such public notice, Israel, my called. No such public notice was ever made by Yahweh God for any other people. How could a Negro or a Chinaman say that they were called according to public notice, according to the purpose of God? It's not to be found in Scripture. Therefore, it is exclusive to the people of the children of Israel who are, for the most part, the surviving portion of the white Adamic race today. It is only they who are called according to purpose, according to the public notice, the public proclamations that were made throughout the entire Bible up until the Passion of Christ. The idea that all one must do is believe in Jesus and one shall somehow be saved has been contrived because men take the scripture out of context, out of the context which limits it to the children of Israel. The proof is readily evident in the words of Christ. From Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. What's the will of Yahweh? that the children of Israel are called, that the children of Israel repent and return to him. It's spelled out 
in those public notices of the prophets in the Old Testament. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have we not cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Those men who say to Christ, Lord, Lord, must certainly believe that he is Lord, and therefore they must believe in Jesus, as the denominational sects of today like to say. But if Jesus never knew them, then they could not have been of Israel because God stated publicly in Amos that he only knew Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, which is what Yahweh said to Israel in Amos chapter 3, one of those public notices, one of those prothesis or prothesis, prothesis, I believe in plural, I could be wrong. Taking the gospel out of this context, one is found to be fighting against the word of God. One who does not gather with Christ is a scatterer. The purpose of the calling is only for Israel, as only Israel was called. These words of Paul's can't be ignored. Verse 29. Because those whom he has known beforehand, he is also appointed beforehand, conformed to the image of his Son, for him to be firstborn among many brethren. The compound Greek word, sumorphous, is conformed to here. However, the phrases shaped with, formed with, fashioned with, are all just as appropriate. Yahweh formed the Adamic man. Yahweh formed Israel. We see this prophecy of Israel in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 5. And now, saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered. Yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the nations, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. The nations of Isaiah's time are those, both those nations of earlier dispersed Israelites and the nations of the Adamic world listed in Genesis chapter 10, to which Israel would be scattered, as the word of Yahweh prophecies in Isaiah chapter 66. The light to the nations, those nations that Israel was to be scattered amongst and sent to, Isaiah 66, 19. 
Yahweh says, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those through the escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal, and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. All of these nations of Isaiah 66:19 were Adamic Genesis 10 nations. The light which Israel was to bring to the nations in Isaiah chapter 49, I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 66, was the glory of Yahweh declared among those other Adamic nations where Israel was initially scattered. I'm sorry, I had it right the first time, Isaiah chapter 49. The light where Yahweh says in Isaiah 49, I will also give thee for a light to the nations. Well, in Isaiah chapter 66, Yahweh listed the nation's where the children of Israel, deported by the Assyrians, would be driven, and he said that they shall declare my glory among those nations. So these two scriptures are definitely connected, and by that we see what the light is that Israel would bring to the nations, and which nations Israel was to bring that light to. Compare Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6, with Isaiah 66, verse 19. Christ only foreknew and appointed beforehand, as, Christ, as Paul says here, because those whom he has known beforehand, he has also appointed beforehand conform to the image of his Son. Christ only foreknew and appointed beforehand the children of Israel. In Amos chapter 3, the prophet says, from verse 1, Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Who did Christ know beforehand? Only the children of Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Nobody else can claim to be known beforehand if God himself says that he only knew Israel. And of course, God knew all the people on the planet but he's only accepting a knowledge and having a relationship with the children of Israel. That's his profession directly. You only have I known. So only Israel was known beforehand. Paul's not teaching universalism. Paul is teaching exclusivity. There's no way around this language unless you're a liar. If you're a liar, you can deny the words of God. If you want to be a universalist, you cannot be a Christian. 
Yahweh refers to the election of Israel, where he attests in Isaiah 44-7 that he appointed the ancient people, which is a reference to the election of Israel to which he had referred in Isaiah 44-1, where he says, Yet now hear, O Jacob my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesse, run whom I have chosen. This is the purpose to which Paul refers, the public notice, to which Paul refers in verse 28 of this chapter. <laughs> I need a drink. If Christ is the second Adam, then the image of Christ must be the image of the Adamic man which Adam passed on to his own sons. Genesis 5.3. Additionally, all of the descendants of Noah who were all originally white, and both history and scripture proved that they were all originally white, I'm sorry, I have a slight distraction. Of all of the descendants of Noah, only the Adamic race has that spirit imparted by God, which can complete the image of God. And all of the descendants of Noah were originally white. That can be proven. The Adamic race only includes the white race. Genetically and biologically, it can't possibly include the other races. And if anything happened, to make any one of the other races a descendant of Noah, that happened through a violation of Yahweh's law. Yes, a mongrel can claim to be a descendant of Noah in part, but only because there was a violation of Yahweh's law, of his law of kind after kind. They can never be accepted. If Christ is the second Adam, then the image of Christ must be the image of Adamic man, which Adam passed on to his own sons. Noah also had, and his sons also had, the image of Adamic, of, of Adam that same image imparted to Adam and transmitted to Seth, which is demonstrated in Genesis chapter 9, where it says that the blood of man would be required of anyone who murders man because 
man is in the image of God, which shows that that image endured the fall of Adam. That image endured the flood of Noah. I've seen a lot of people say a lot of crazy things about that image. The Bible tells us explicitly that Yahweh knew only Israel beforehand. As Paul also explains that they are them who are called according to his purpose. Therefore, it is they who are conformed to the image of his Son. However, Christ must also share their physical appearance since he took upon himself the seed of Abraham, Hebrews 2.16. And the Adamic man is in the likeness as well as the image of Yahweh his God. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it is described that the Adamic man was created in the image of God. In Genesis 5, 3, it is confirmed that this image, along with the likeness of man, is transmitted to subsequent generations of Adamic man through the act of procreation, where it says, and Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Noah was called perfect in his generations, and we see in Genesis 9-6 that man, meaning the descendants of Noah, were made in the image of God. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, told his Dorian Greek readers that man was the image and glory of God. In Romans chapter 5, Paul equates his use of the term for man with Adam. In spite of the poor King James rendering of the passage, at Colossians 1.15, Paul tells us that Christ is the likeness of the invisible God, firstborn of all the creation. As we have already exhibited here, with certainty, all the creation of Colossians 1.15 are all of the Adamic Israelite brethren of Romans 8.29. Verse 30. Moreover, those whom he has appointed beforehand. These he also calls. And those whom he calls, these he also deems worthy. While those whom he deems worthy, these he also honors. Where does Yahweh call niggers? Or Chinamen? Or anyone else? But those whom he appointed beforehand, and where are any other races appointed beforehand in Scripture? Only the children of Israel were ever appointed beforehand. How can men twist these words into universalism? These are very explicit, exclusive words.
As we have just witnessed, the scripture tells us that the children of Israel are the ancient people, Isaiah 44.7, whom Yahweh had called and appointed. Here Paul is telling us that Yahweh calls those whom he had already appointed. Therefore, he calls nobody except those whom he had already called. If one wants to bring the gospel to anyone, one is working in vain if the target people were not called and appointed beforehand, meaning in the Old Testament, because that is the only place where anyone can justly find any of these promises or any of these designations. There are no promises in Christ for anyone outside of these people, and a bastard shall not enter the congregation. If one attempts to gather anyone other than the previously called and previously appointed people, he is scattering because he is not gathering with Christ. Upon her announcement of childbearing, Mary, the mother of Christ, is recorded in the Gospel of Luke to, uh, to have exclaimed that he has come to the aid of his servant Israel to call mercy into remembrance, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Luke chapter 1, verses 54 and 55. In his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul uses very similar language with the understanding that the Greeks of Ephesus were also of the dispersions of ancient Israel. Yes, they were. From Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed is Yahweh, even the Father of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, who has blessed us among the anointed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as he has chosen us with him before the foundation of the society for us to be holy and blameless before him with love, having preordained us into the position of sons to Yahshua Christ for himself, in accordance with the satisfaction of his will, for the praise of the honor of his favor, of which he has favored us among the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the dismissal of sins, the dismissal of transgressions. Therefore, they must have been under the law. In accordance with the riches of his favor, which he makes abundant for us, and I'll skip to verse 11, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being preordained according to the purpose. Again, the word prothesis, a public notice or a public statement. According to the purpose of he who accomplishes all things in accordance with the design of his will in the Old Testament, where all those public statements were made. For which we are to be in praise of his honor, who before had expectation in Christ, 
in whom you also, having heard the word of truth, the good message of your deliverance, in which also having believed, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, which is a deposit of our inheritance in regard to redemption of the possession, the law of kinsmen, redemption in Israel. The Ephesians, Paul wrote to, must have been descendants of ancient Israel. Otherwise, there's no transgression, there's no need for the dismissal of transgression. And only Israel was preordained according to the public notice of he who accomplishes all things in accordance with the, with the design of his will, which is in the Old Testament, in the prophets. That is those who were chosen before the foundation of the society. Those who were preordained in accordance with the design of his will. These things must have been announced in the Old Testament. Or all of Paul's words here are vain. Because nobody could know beforehand the design of his will. But that is the purpose of the prophets. And all of these things, pre-ordination, the calling, the purpose, all of these things were promised only to the children of Israel exclusively. The law was only given to the children of Israel as professed in the Psalms and the prophets. So nobody else needs a dismissal of transgressions as Paul explained to the Ephesians that they indeed received. Verse 31, now what may we say in reply to these things? If Yahweh is for us, who is against us? From Psalm 118, from verse 5, I called upon Yahweh in distress, and Yahweh answered me, and set me in a large place. Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Yahweh takes my part with them that help me, therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. Psalm 118. From Luke chapter 1. Luke, giving us the words of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, proclaiming the purpose of, of, of the Messiah, basically, the purpose of Christ from verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, 
same message that we saw in Psalm 118. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Verse 32, Romans 8. Who indeed spared not his own son, but for all of us handed him over. How then with him will he not favor us in every way? For all of us handed him over. Indeed, he spared not his all his own son, but for all of us handed him over. For all of us must be taken in the context which Paul provides here. For all of those who were of the chosen the called, the anciently appointed, and the preordained, all of which terms refer exclusively to the ancient children of Israel. This, too, is an explicit matter of prophecy. Why was Christ handed over? Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of a dry ground, he has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. If you were not under the law, you are not one of for all of us for whom Yahweh handed Christ over. He was only handed over for Israel. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh laid on him the iniquity of us all. The all of us in Romans 8.32, are the same people as the of us all in Isaiah 53.7, which can only refer to the ancient children of Israel. Nobody, nobody in their right minds reading the Bible would try to squeeze witch doctors and squat monsters into Isaiah 53.7. And therefore, they should not try to squeeze witch doctors and squat monsters into Romans 8.32. Because it's the same message for the same people. From Deuteronomy 10.15. Only Yahweh had a delight in thy fathers to love them 
and he chose their seed after them, even you, meaning Israel, above all people as it is this day. It has not changed. Romans 8.33 Who shall bring an accusation against the chosen of Yahweh? It is Yahweh who renders justice. From Revelation 12.10 A prophecy which has been fulfilled in the past and as verse 11 indicates for which we are yet awaiting a future fulfillment and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down who accused them before our God day and night they do they accuse us in their actions here on earth in the real world every single day the word devil is from a Greek word which means accuser and and by implication a false accuser verse 34 who is he that condemns Joshua Christ who had died then in a greater moment was raised and whom is at the right hand of Yahweh and whom intercedes for us the Greek word malon is rendered as greater moment here it, it's a poetic rendering rather than a literal one it simply means greater or very very much or exceedingly from Revelation 1911 and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteous in righteousness he does judge and make war and here in this verse verse 34 Paul uses the idea of intercession he who intercedes for us to describe not intercession between man and God but between Yahweh God and his enemies on our behalf Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 31 for their rock is not as our rock even our enemies themselves being judges for their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah their grapes are grapes of gall their clusters are bitter their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps the serpents right is not this laid up in store with me and sealed among my treasures to me belongs vengeance and recompense their foot shall slide in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things that shall come upon them make haste at this very time today we see a proliferation of the vine of Sodom and the grapes of Gaul throughout Christian society and by that we know that once again the enemies of our God shall soon be judged their feet shall slide in due time we owe the Jews a Holocaust 
Do not doubt that they shall see the day. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Affliction or strait or persecution or hunger or nakedness or danger or sword. The Codex Sinaiticus reads the opening clause from the love of Yahweh. The Codex Vaticanus from the love of Yahweh, which is in Christ. Here Paul explains that what nothing whatsoever can separate the children of Israel from the love of Yahweh, regardless of their sin and the resulting chastisement which they receive. Verse 36, just as it is written, that for your sake we are put to death the whole day, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And here Paul quotes Psalm 44. In the context of his statement that Yahweh himself subjected his Adamic creation to transiency. Once again, in order to see just what Paul is referring to, we must go back into the scriptures to examine the context of the passage which he has cited. Examining Psalm 44, which, he, which Paul quotes here, this psalm is apparently one of the psalms of Asaph, which were written during the captivity. So we will read the psalm in part to understand the context of the passage which Paul has quoted. Because Paul is not quoting these things because they're clue or because they sound good. Paul is quoting these things for a specific reason, because they apply to the people who he is addressing. Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name will we tread them under that rise up against us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ through whom we have the victory, as Paul has just stated. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. But thou hast saved us from our enemies, and hast put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long, and praise thy name forever. But thou hast cast us off, and put us to shame, and goest not forth with our armies. That's a reference to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Asaph is writing this psalm during the captivity. Thou makest us to turn back from the enemy, and they which hate us spoil for themselves. Thou hast given us like sheep appointed for meat, and hast scattered us among the heathen. And we'll skip to verse 19 of Psalm 44. Though thou hast sore broken us in the place of dragons, and covered us with the shadow of death, if we have forgotten the name of our God, 
or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall God search this out. For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yeah, and this is the verse Paul quotes. For thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul is quoting this here in Romans in basically the same context as it was written in the psalm in reference to the enemies of Israel, where Paul had already asked if Yahweh is for us, who is against us? Verse 23 of the psalm. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Yahweh? Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore, hidest thou face, and forgettest our affliction and our oppression. For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaves to the earth. Arise for our help, and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. This psalm is a prayer of restoration and salvation for Israel. And Paul's quoting from it to the Romans in basically the same context. For Israel to be saved from their enemies. And this is the same purpose for the Messiah as it was expressed by the father of John the Baptist, as it was recorded in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we will cite it once again from verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham that he, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Examining the scripture, we see that the purpose of Yahweh has not changed from Old Testament to New. And here in Romans, Paul is indeed teaching the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament in the New Verse 37, but in all of these things we are more than victorious through he who loves us. From Revelation chapter 15, from verse 1, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the last seven plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on a sea of glass, having the harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Quoting from Isaiah, 
The Apostle Matthew wrote of Christ in chapter 12 of his gospel from verse 18. Behold, my son, whom I have chosen, my beloved, who has pleased my soul, I shall set my spirit upon him, and he shall announce judgment to the nations. Neither shall he quarrel nor cry out, nor shall one hear his voice in the streets. A crushed reed he shall not break, and a smoldering cord he shall not quench, until he should issue judgment in victory, and in his name shall the nations, meaning the Genesis 10 Adamic nations, and the nations of the dispersed children of Israel, and in his name shall the nations have hope. These nations are the nations of Abraham's seed, as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 4. It is they who are to be saved in Christ from our enemies, from the hand of all that hate us, which we have just seen attested to in the opening chapter of Luke. This is the victory to which Paul refers. If Yahweh is for us, who can be against us? Verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor messengers, angels, nor magistrates, and some manuscripts add nor authorities to that phrase, nor present, nor future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creation will be able to separate us from the love of Yahweh, which is in Yahshua Christ, our Prince. Any other creation shows that Paul, speaking about the whole creation here in Romans 8.22, which laments and awaits the redemption of our bodies, demonstrates that by that, Paul is referring to one single creation, the creation of Adamic man. In reference to the phrase, any other creation, here in Romans 8.39, we shall once again cite the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 19, verse 6, for the whole Creature, catesis, the same word as creation here, Brenton chose to write creature. For the whole creature, meaning the whole creation, in his proper kind was fashioned again anew, serving the peculiar commandments that were given unto them, only Israel had the law of God, that thy children might be kept without hurt. Here it is evident that Solomon used the same word to describe and distinguish only the children of Israel, pure Adamic people in their proper kind, as Yahweh created the Adamic man. It was not all of the world's beasts which were keeping the law when Solomon wrote. It was only the children of Israel. They were considered a whole creation by Solomon, as they are here 
by Paul. As we previously explained while presenting Romans chapters 4 and 5, the promise to Abraham, in the promise to Abraham, the children of Israel came to supplant the entire Adamic world of old. And the seed of Abraham therefore inherited the Adamic nations as they were promised to by Yahweh. Therefore, Solomon explained that in keeping the law, those same Israelites were fashioned anew so that the creation of Adamic man may be preserved. And using the phrase which means the whole creation, he refers exclusively to the Adamic children of Israel. From Isaiah chapter 43, from verse 1, But now, thus saith Yahweh, that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Even everyone that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. Here in verses 38 and 39, we see us, meaning the children of Israel in the context of Paul's epistle, contrasted to a list of other things which God created, and also to any other creation. Therefore, the phrases, the creation, and the whole creation, which both appear in verses 19 through 22 of this chapter, Romans chapter 8, can only refer to the creation of a single kind, Adam kind. And that's also what it must be, what the same phrase must refer to elsewhere in Scripture. Colossians 1.15, Colossians 1.23. Mark 16, 15. Mark 16, verse 15. They certainly do not refer to every single entity or organism which Yahweh God created separately. The Adamic man was a peculiar creation. That is how he is considered here by Paul as a peculiar creation. When we see the words every creature in Scripture, those words are singular. They mean the whole creation. Neither can it refer to those creations, those other creations of God, or to those creations which either men or angels have corrupted in the thousands of years that it's been since they were created. Paul of Tarsus was not a universalist. Paul was clearly teaching the fulfillment in Christ of the promises of Yahweh which were recorded in Scripture for the children of Israel exclusively. 
the denominational churches teach universalism in spite of the letters of Paul, but not because of them, not by any means. I'd like to take a minute here to discuss Colossians 1.23, which we cited earlier this evening in our presentation concerning Romans 8.22 here. In the King James Version, Colossians 1.23 reads, If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and do not be moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, wherefore I, Paul, had made a minister. Taking it for granted that the King James Version is correct, which it's not really, but taking it for granted that it is. We should never bring the gospel to any race of people who are outside of the Greco-Roman world of Paul's time and who had not yet heard the gospel. Taking it for granted that the King James Version is correct and accepting Mark 16.15 as a legitimate portion of Scripture, which I do not, but let's say it is for the purpose of our argument here, the commission of Christ in Mark 16.15 to preach the gospel to every creature was already fulfilled when Paul wrote Colossians. Therefore, there cannot possibly be a need to bring the gospel to any of the other races who had not yet received it by Paul's time. There were no apostles in Kenya by Paul's time. Nobody was preaching the gospel to Eskimos or Latin American squat monsters or Chinamen by the time Paul wrote Colossians. So therefore, they cannot be part of every creature which is, which is under heaven. Because Paul says here in Colossians 1.23, according to the King James Version anyway, that the gospel was already preached to every creature which is under heaven. So, Chinamen don't fall into the category of every creature under heaven. Negroes don't fall into the category of every creature under heaven. Either all of the universalists are liars, or Paul is a liar. Indeed, the universalists do not get their instructions from Paul. The greater part of the Adamic race, which is the whole creation that Paul was concerned with, had indeed an opportunity to hear the gospel, or they were in the process of hearing it by the time Paul wrote Colossians. With this, it is evident that there was never any need to bring the gospel to any other race. Because Paul professes here, if we accept the King James translation, Paul professes in Colossians 1.23 that the commission of Mark chapter 16, verse 15, was already already fulfilled. Now, now I just posited that as, as a um, point of argument. I will discuss it at length, Yahweh willing, when we get to Colossians 
in our presentation of the epistles of Paul. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther, part nine. Martin Luther and, and on the Jews and their lives. Next Friday, Romans chapter nine, Jacob and Esau. That should be fun, I pray. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. And good night. Mm-hmm.